0: Genesis 33, and we'll read the whole chapter. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We pray that you would take it and cause our our ears now to hear, cause our hearts to respond in faith to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, Leslie and I have uh, a lot of the same kinds of we like the same kind of movies. We have our differences, but there, there's enough commonality that we can watch things together we enjoy. But there's one thing that we both appreciate about a movie, and that is closure. That when the end of the movie comes, there is a sense that the questions that have been raised, they're answered to some degree. That you at least understand the trajectory of people's lives. Not that everybody lives happily ever after, but you at least know the way their lives are going to be lived out, you want some sense of satisfaction. And some movies do that very well, but there are some that don't do that well at all. In fact, I think some filmmakers have figured out that since that's the norm, in an effort to be different or to set themselves apart, they've created movies that don't have closure, just to kind of rattle us a little bit. And you know what it's like when you get to a movie like that. you're, You're just shocked that the words are going up the screen. You're like, wait, wait, you know, this isn't supposed to be the end. You're kind of just left hanging. And that's the way chapter 32 leaves us. You know, we had this experience where Esau's coming. Jacob makes all these preparations to protect his family. God shows up in the middle of the night, although he doesn't know it's God. It's a man, shows up, wrestles with him until it's dawn, realizes at the very end that this was God in, in human form. And then it just ends and, and we're left like, what, what's about to happen? Well, that's where we pick up. And with the dawning of this new day, Jacob has now got a new limp, a permanent limp from this experience that he had uh, with God. But what is on his mind the most is the approach of his brother. Coming, he knows now, he's been told by his messengers with 400 men. We know that God had shown mercy to Jacob in this wrestling match that he had uh, uh, simply touched his hip socket. He could have annihilated him, could have destroyed him, but he simply touched his hip socket. Uh, This was given not just as a momentary grace, but really as a, a reminder of God's grace. This was going to go with him. This was going to be forever with him to remind him that God is God and Jacob is not. We need to understand that Jacob's spiritual growth is not that different from our spiritual growth. You know, sometimes we read Bible stories or about Bible characters and we kind of put them into a different level. We kind of elevate them a little bit and we forget that they're human like us and that they go through the same kinds of struggles like we do. I mean, we have seen Jacob certainly transformed by God's grace. He is a different man uh, today than what we were first introduced to. And he is growing and maturing by God's grace. But just as we experience seasons of growth and grace, we also experience seasons of dryness, seasons of decline, seasons of, Lord, where are you and what are you doing? We have those seasons as well, and we see this in the characters of Scripture as well. I think this happens because we relax or we get comfortable. I think that's one of the reasons. I think one of the more common reasons, though, is that we forget we just forget. It's that gospel amnesia that we talk about so much. We forget the hope of the promise of the gospel because a lot of times there's this cacophony of noise that we just are overwhelmed by the moment we get either out of God's word in our personal time or we go out of here after a Sunday and we're just bombarded, not just with the the voices that are out there, but the, the voices of the situations that are out there. You know, we... Uh, have challenges in our families, we have challenges in our work, we have challenges in our finances, we have challenges just abroad, relationships, but the list could go on and on. And these things cause us to forget the hope of the gospel that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so this is no different than for those in scripture. God has graciously given Jacob this physical reminder that He is God and Jacob is not. It's Jacob's thorn in the flesh. That was Paul's term of describing what most think was some kind of physical infirmity that God allowed him to have. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. This has like a Job-esque kind of flavor to it as Paul describes it. "...to keep me from becoming conceited." Three times I pleaded with the Lord, we, that keep me from becoming conceited." You notice he mentions that twice. That's, that's something to tuck away in our memory as to why the Lord often brings difficulty, why we might have a thorn in the flesh. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, "...my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, sharp hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, we don't like to think of pain, suffering, chronic conditions, uh, emotional struggles, or even just the things that we don't like about our own personalities or our makeup as tools of God's grace in our lives. We like to think of these things uh, as things we'd like to just get rid of, things that we'd like to reverse or change. But God has often given us things, maybe even things that we don't like about our own situation, as tools of His grace, because this is the nature of His upside-down kingdom. He takes what is broken. He takes what is twisted and maligned, what is backwards, or that which is simply not preferred or esteemed. In other words, God takes what is uncool about us and he uses it for his glory and for our good. He reconciles us, not only us, but he reconciles our lives and our situations. Behold, he's making all things new. The dawn is breaking, the sun is rising, and as Jacob heads out now limping along on this new day, the moment has come for this confrontation now with his brother. Verse 1 says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes. He looks up and he sees this mass of men approaching, and he knows immediately who this is. His messengers have already told him. He's probably been rehearsing this in his head over and over, and it was that you've had those kind of things where you know something dreaded is coming, and it's going to come over the horizon, but when it comes over the horizon, there's this just this Intensifying of dread, like it, it's here. I've been thinking about it. I've been dreading it. It's here. It's here. It's here. And he springs into action, this time not to protect his family from annihilation. He has determined to face Esau. But what he does is one of two things he's, he's arranging them either in order of honor from, their, uh, from least to greatest, which is something that's hard for us to understand because this is his family. Um, and we don't think in terms of these types of honor in family. Uh, we, we would talk about an age order and maybe there's some honor in that. But here he's ranging the servants uh, and their children first. These are all his children, the servants first and then Leah. But notice who he puts in the back. It's, it's Rachel and Joseph. It's his beloved Rachel and Joseph, who we later learn is his favorite Well, he's either doing that to show the honor or he's doing that possibly to protect Rachel and Joseph because they're his favorite. We're not told the intentions of Jacob's heart for doing this, but whatever the reasoning is, we see the same patterns of sin that were present in his parents. You remember Isaac and Rebecca and the favoritism that they showed to Jacob and to Esau. And now Jacob's doing the same thing showing favoritism. And that favoritism that he is showing, particularly uh, to Joseph, is, is going to come out more in the story. It's a story that we know quite well, where his brothers become envious of the fact that he is his father's favorite. And so that sin is going to continue to, to, to bear fruit, unfortunately, in the life of Jacob's family. It's another good time to remind ourselves uh, that we don't lift up our biblical heroes, Or even our modern heroes in the faith. Uh, I think that. I think part of this is just our human condition. We like to have heroes. But I think it's especially bad for us as American Christians. Because we have this infatuation with celebrity in America. I'm always. I I know this is true. But I still find myself dumbfounded. When I go to a doctor's office. Or some place of business. Where the TV's on. And daytime television's on. And it's people interviewing celebrities as if they are experts on things that they are no experts of. And it's just one right after the other. And this is what America is drinking from, the fountain that America is drinking from. Let's listen to celebrities. Well, we shake our heads and we see that. We're all affected by it. We're not immune to it. In the church, we do kind of the same thing. We do the same thing with our own spiritual heroes. And then we're we're just leveled when one falls, Well, we can do the same thing in Scripture where we raise someone up. And, you know, but but we look at our spiritual heroes in Scripture. We can admire them. We can respect them as we can our modern-day people of faith. But we need to be careful where we place our worship. And that becomes tricky because one minute our spiritual heroes are walking along in faith and the next minute, like Jacob, they're lying and cheating and... Uh, doing all that Jacob, playing favorites, all the things that Jacob did. So let's determine not to idolize humans. That's just a good practice. Just don't idolize humans. We can respect, we can appreciate, but instead let's worship the Savior of those who we look up to in the faith, whether in Scripture or in modern day, because he's the only one, who is steady and true. He's the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one unwavering. He's the only one that is perfectly reliable. So let's be careful where we put our hope uh, in, in, uh, in those that we respect and admire. Well, we do, even saying that, we do see some nobility here in Jacob. I mean, he does uh, do something. I mean, whether he was showing favoritism by putting Joseph and Rachel in the back or, or whatever the, the reasoning of that was, he doesn't stay in the back. Jacob does the noble thing. He goes to the front, and he, he steps out in, in leadership. He doesn't cower in the back. And as he nears his brother, he begins bowing, and he bows seven times. And we learn from other historical records that this was a traditional Eastern way of approach. It is a sign of humility, and so he is doing this. What's interesting is you may remember when the blessing was spoken over Jacob by his father in chapter 27, he said to him in Genesis 27, 29, be Lord of your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. And here is now this reversal of that. It's a reversal of the promise. It's intentional, it's momentary, uh, but it is this attempt by Jacob to show Esau the genuineness of his contrition that he's truly sorry for what he had done. And if for nothing else, it was Jacob's last-ditch effort not to be killed because he still doesn't know what Esau's intention is. Now, we've read the text, so we know where this is going, so it's, it's lost a little bit on us. But put yourself in Esau's shoes, or Jacob's shoes. Here's Esau with 400 men. You've dreaded and dreaded and dreaded this moment, and now you are coming face to face to him, with him. And all of a sudden, as you're approaching and you're bowing and you're bowing and you're bowing, all of a sudden Esau just takes off and starts charging right at you. Because that, that's exactly what happened. I mean, from Jacob's perspective, he doesn't know, we know, but Jacob doesn't know that Esau's coming to embrace him and to kiss him. And so for those momentary seconds while he's charging at his brother, that intensity that has risen and risen and risen of the anxiousness that Jacob must have felt in facing his brother is now at uh, just, you know, blood pressure is through the roof at this point. And instead of attacking him, as we know, Jacob, or Esau runs to him, he embraces him, and this certainly had to be beyond Jacob's imagination, right? He's thought of this scenario, how this is going to go down. He's thought through all the different what-ifs. I don't think this was one of the what ifs that he thought of. I don't think he even imagined Esau responding this way. It is an image of reconciliation that is incredibly powerful. And it's also one that may sound strangely familiar. Listen to this passage from Luke 15. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's the parable of the prodigal son. And there are some scholars who suggest that that this image is what Jesus had in mind when he told that parable. We don't know that, but what we can say for sure is that both are images or pictures of reconciliation and both are powerful pictures of reconciliation. It's not the it's not the Presbyterian kind of reconciliation that we would we would think of. You know, the business-oriented, transaction-oriented, uh, very kind of uh, arbitration-focused reconciliation of coming into a, a boardroom or at a conference table. This is this lavish, overflowing, abundant, overwhelming grace of God toward us in running, embracing, and kissing us in love. Those are not terms that we typically like to use, but it's the picture that Jesus paints of our reconciliation with God. Throughout this passage, Esau makes no statement of faith. He makes no, he gives no acknowledgement to trusting God, makes no mention of God, while Jacob does throughout. And yet the work of reconciliation here is still the work of God. See, the God that Jacob had wrestled with in this assault of grace that we looked at last week showed him that he was his protector and he was his deliverer. And now in this moment, he's showing Jacob, I'm also your reconciler. I am the one who makes peace. It's not you. It's not you. It's not you. And I feel like that's the message that we need to hear in our current situation because we we we're i mean everybody's telling us do this to fix this do this to fix that do this to fix this do this to fix that and nothing's of course working and God is saying to us trust me trust me trust me obey me follow me i'm the reconciler i'm the deliverer i'm the protector look to me look to me look to me it's the same message that Jacob needed to learn that we do as well see Jacob first had to be reconciled to god before he could be reconciled to his brother, and that's true for us. We cannot know the true, uh, lasting, deep peace with others until we're first made right with God. That's what's described to us in Ephesians 2. But now, and this is Ephesians 2:13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, it wasn't Jacob's gifts. It wasn't Jacob's bowing. It wasn't even Esau's reaction that killed this hostility and brought about reconciliation between these two brothers. It was the God of grace who did this. It was him and him alone. This is why Jacob says to his brother in verse 10, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. It's a strange expression when we read it. But what Jacob was recognizing and saying in this statement is that in the same way that I wrestled face-to-face with God and lived, survived, lived to tell about it, in the same way, now, God is showing me his grace in facing you, Esau, and living to tell about it. Reconciliation is always the work of God's grace. Kent Hughes writes this The principle of God first, man second, is written large in the language of love in the scripture. It is the very structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four command love for God, the second six command love for humanity. That's the order. Love God and then you can love man. So if you're struggling with hostility toward another person or even toward a group of people, know that no amount of personal willpower or resolve will fix what is broken in the relationship. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself you see when we are fully trusting God in faith we will love others when we are fully trusting God in faith we will love others to say it in the opposite way we have to go to first John and read we love God because he first loved us if anyone says I love God and hates his brother he's a liar That's the same thing, but saying it in an opposite way. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This command to love our neighbor, to love God and love our neighbor is given without condition. We don't love if others are nice to us. We don't love if others are not threatening us. Think about Jacob, what he was facing, this obstacle. This was a huge threat. I mean, again, right up until the last minute when Esau is charging him and Jacob still doesn't know what his intention is. And again, I can only think that his imagination was my brother's coming to kill me. He's running at me to kill me right now. This is what is about to happen. This was truly an obstacle. But what was he doing? Well, because Jacob had had learned through this wrestling event, through this having his his hip socket touched, through a thorn in the flesh, through pain and suffering, Jacob was learning to trust God. And because he trusts God, he could move forward toward his brother to be reconciled. It wasn't Jacob's good intention. It wasn't Jacob's, again, his gifts, his bowing. It wasn't any of that that reconciled to his brother. But he trusted God and moved forward in faith. And in this act of obedience, God's grace showered down as is demonstrated in Esau's response toward Jacob. Jacob didn't need to fear Esau because of who God is. Jacob didn't need to fear Esau because of who God is. And you and I can move toward others in love, seeking reconciliation because of who God is. And as we do so, we can testify as Jacob did in verse 11, God has dealt graciously with me. Well, Esau receives the gifts that Jacob gives to him. This solidifies the reconciliation. There was the typical Eastern, no, 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 yes, 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 back and forth, but Esau finally receives it and the hatchet's buried. The reconciliation has been solidified and they are ready to move forward. And so Esau says to his brother in verse 12, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. So Esau is going back to Edom. He's going back to Seir where he lives, but this is outside of the promised land. Jacob should have spoken up at this point and said, no, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to go to the promised land. But Jacob begins reverting back to some of his old ways. He had been commanded to go specifically to Bethel in the promised land. He ends up in Shechem. We're going to talk about that more in a second. This should not have even been an option for him. And rather than stating this plainly, he says what first looks like just politeness in verse 13. My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are in my care. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Okay, true enough. That sounds nice. But then he goes on in verse 14 and deceives his brother. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children that I may come to my lord in Seir. There's no question Jacob lies to him. He has no intention of going to Seir. He knows that he can't go to Seir, and he deceives his brother. Well, Jacob allows, there's some more exchange. Jacob allows Esau to take off. Esau is coming, you know, for what looks like to be on war. I mean, he's coming on horses. He's moving fast. Jacob, lots of herds, has to move really slow. All that makes sense. But Esau heads back to Edom, and Jacob turns and goes to what becomes known as Succoth. Uh, We're not told how long he spends uh, there, but there's some time that's spent. He's long enough to build a house and build what are called booths or shelters for his livestock. We don't know the reasoning for Jacob's pausing here. Maybe it was uh, just to catch catch his breath. Uh, Not really sure. But in verse 18, we get the kind of the finality that he does eventually make it to the promised land. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And so here we see God's promise being fulfilled, that Jacob and his family are safely in the promised land. But as I mentioned previously, Jacob should have kept going. He was so close. Shechem and Bethel aren't that far apart. Bethel was where he was supposed to be. God had told him in in Genesis 31, 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. That's where he was supposed to go. He moved in the right direction. But he did not move to the commanded destination. This is called half obedience. And we all know what half obedience is. What is half obedience? It's disobedience. I can still hear the echo of my mother's words that she used to say to us over and over half obedience is disobedience. And it is. We like to think that it's not. And all the, you know, if you've raised children, you know how this works, right? Clean the kitchen you come back in, the kitchen's not clean. Well, I did most of it. You know, mow the yard. The yard's not done. Well, Well, we do the same thing. You You go and your boss tells you to submit a report and you do 80% of the report. Is the boss like, thanks, appreciate that. No, you didn't do it. You only did 80% of it. If you come almost to a stop at a stop sign, the police officer doesn't say, hey, good job, you almost got it. No, you get a ticket because you rolled through the stop sign. HOA gives you the citation for only mowing 70% of your yard, right? You this does half obedience is disobedience. It's not full obedience. And this is what we see in Jacob's life. He stopped short. And his failure to obey God in this what seems, "Seth, come on. This is so minuscule. This is not a big deal. Bethel, Shechem, they're really close. He lead, he made it to the promised land." Well, we're going to see how this brings and it opens the door for an incredible tragedy that we're going to look at next week. Because where he stopped and where he purchased land, the the sons of Hamor are going to do something incredibly awful to one of his children. And, And this falling short, this failure to obey God completely, this half obedience is going to set the stage for this travesty. But even though we, you know, we talk about our spiritual growth being up and down, we look at Jacob, we we, we grieve with him that he doesn't obey God fully, but we also rejoice that he does continue to grow in faith, right? He's trusting God. He's praising God. He builds this altar. He names it the mighty creator God is the God of Israel. And in this, he praised God for his protection, for his deliverance for the reconciliation that he gave with his brother. And we're going to continue to see the ongoing struggle, not only in Jacob's life, but in all of the patriarch's lives, struggling to live up to their new identity. Well, the message of reconciliation that we see in chapter 33 is incredibly powerful. It's not what you'd expect as you read the story that this is where these two brothers were going to end up. And we see clearly that it is solely the work of God's grace. It's not the work of man. Reconciliation is the work of God. And this is the message, the ministry that we have been given. It's the message of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation given to us in the gospel uh, in in that what Christ has done for us allows us to be reconciled not only to God but to others. We read about it in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The God who created us for His glory, whose glory we have all fallen short of in our sin, has come running after us to embrace us and kiss us with His lavish grace. Through Jesus' death for our sins, He has reconciled us to Him. He has fixed what is broken, satisfied His just wrath by making Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And the result is that we might become the very righteousness of God by faith in Christ. You and I cannot reconcile ourselves to God. We can't. We can't even reconcile ourselves to each other. I mean, look at our world. It's it's fractured, it's wrecked by our own wickedness. We cannot fix it. We are without hope except for the love of God shown to us in Christ. Hear the call. Of the great creator God of Israel. Be reconciled to me by faith in Jesus. Come to him, trust him, and be made whole. And then as we believe, having been reconciled to him, we have now been given this message and ministry of reconciliation. Paul says that we are his ambassadors. We are sent out with a message and a ministry, a message and a task. We're not to live at odds with our brothers and sisters. We cannot hate others and say that we love God. Instead, because of God's great love toward us in Christ, we are to love lavishly, sacrificially, and graciously as we ourselves have been loved. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you... Would you open our eyes to see the vastness of this reconciliation? Lord, sometimes I think we're, we're short-sighted. We, we, we really don't, we don't, we don't get it. We don't realize all that has been done for us. We don't realize how at enmity we were with you, how fractured and broken and distant and impossible that relationship was except For the love that you have shown us in Christ. Would you help us to see and realize. And appreciate and know. The reconciliation that is ours. In in, in Christ. Lord would you then take that. That ministry and message of reconciliation. That love that you have lavishly given to us. Would you then take that. And cause us to be your ambassadors. That we would go out and live differently. For the sake of your name that we would love lavishly, sacrificially, graciously, that we would lay our lives down for others, that we would look for ways to show this hope that is ours in Christ. Make us your ambassadors, Lord. Make us effective in that task, that we would proclaim and live out this hope of reconciliation with you, that others might come and be reconciled to you and that we might be reconciled to one another. Let us live in that peace, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.